Welcome to the Hockey Hurts Podcast for July 27th, 2016. Whilst Ryan is away having fun, I thought I'd uh, have a bit of an interview with a man called Nick Rushworth. He's from Brain Injury Australia. Um, was lucky enough to, to bump into Nick when the uh, Ice Hockey Classic was uh, over here in, uh, in Perth. Um, the poor man had to cover the, the entire event on his own all over the country this year, so that was a, a bit of a challenge. Um, but the good thing about the, the interview was got some really good insights into brain injury, um, what Nick does uh, here in Australia for those that have been inflicted, and, and some of his thoughts uh, on processes and, and, and how things uh, can change. Um, it's all very interesting in light of what uh, Gary Bettman uh, has come out in a letter today in regards to protocols and the fact that there's no scientific link at the moment between CTE and um, concussions. So uh, without further ado, here's the interview. Hi guys, and we're lucky enough today to have Nick Rushworth from Brain Injury Australia uh, join us. We are going to sit down and and discuss uh, brain injury, uh, concussions and and all those sorts of things. So uh, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Um, just quickly, so what is Brain Injury Australia? Who are you and, and what's it all about? Okay, so look, Brain Injury Australia was founded in 1986 on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Uh, like a lot of organisations from that time, was founded by a group of um, you know, consumers, so people with a brain injury, family members and carers. Uh, and it sort of evolved from then into a federated association and now a public company. It's still a very small organisation. It's in effect me and a one-day-a-week uh, office manager. <laughs> um, so, I, mean, what I, I guess what I am, to make to cut a long story short, is I'm a national-level lobbyist on behalf of the 700,000 Australians who've got one of these things. So, for, for, your, for your listeners, brain injury is a pretty diverse and disparate group of people. So, as it were, I advocate on behalf of everyone from the shaken baby through to the old person who falls over and lands on their head and all points in between. So it's things like stroke, serious head injury, alcohol-related brain injury, drug overdose, that kind of thing. And also neurological disease, infection, that kind of thing. Okay, cool. So with your time you got to spend with the Ice Hockey Classic um, this year, what was your experience like? Australia to play matches around the country 
um, I think three years ago, and they've been doing it ever since. And this year, for the first time ever, it's been renamed, and I'm sure we'll probably get to this in the conversation, Cam, renamed the inaugural um, Wayne Gretzky Ice Hockey Classic in honour of Wayne who came to Australia. So I am, and I have been for the last three years running, in effect, the local charity partner for the Ice Hockey Classic because of the concussion education work that I do. So did you, like, were you floating around last year as well when they came to Perth? Oh, you know, I didn't actually make it to Perth last year. It's a long way across. Oh, brilliant. That's great. Yep. So if you have a look at what you saw last year over on the East Coast and then what yep. you saw this year with, with the Classic, yep. like I went to the game last year and went to the game this year, and what was yep. fantastic about last year was that there was a real focus on the stop concussions. It was mentioned all the time. It really helped that, that, that Keith Primary was, was out here uh, last year as one of the coaches so he could discuss yep. about his, talk about his, his real-life experience through the concerns he's had. Uh, it, it was really bizarre this year. It really felt like they took away the focus on the concussion side of things and really amped up the whole Wayne Gretzky being over here thing, which is great for the the sport, but kind of sort of, for me, walked away from what the whole purpose of, of the trip was, if you know what I mean. Well, I'm not, look, I, I can't, I, look, I, I didn't notice necessarily that level of difference. But look, it's like everything else in this world it's, it's got to be a slow burn, mm. and certainly certainly the fact that Wayne was out here this time, and it was called the Wayne Gretzky Classic, particularly at the game in Sydney where he appeared, it was very, very difficult to get a word in edgeways about anything else apart from Wayne being there. <laughs> yep. um, and, and one thing that I've noticed is that you know, the, 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 the ice hockey crowds that tended to go to the game tend to be of two kinds. So there are people who just happen to be genuine ice hockey, ice hockey fans or players, and there are other people who simply go there for the experience. They might have seen ice hockey on TV. It's a great spectacle. It's very fast. It's very, dare I say, it's very violent. Yes, it is. It's violent, not in the sense of deliberately, intentionally violent, but there's a lot of clashing and bashing and mashing. Um, and, you know, what's happened in previous years that I've noticed, you know, I think that if, if, if Kerry and Keith were... Uh, part of this conversation they'd probably agree is what you would see in any ice hockey game in North America which is the crowd gets most animated when there's a fight and certainly all the concussion risk exposures in ice hockey obviously those staged fights are the most brutal and the most productive of genuine concussion genuine head injury and potentially brain injury as well but it's look I think these two guys, Keith Primo and Kerry Goulet, are really well-intentioned people who want to, as it were, slip, slip the concussion education message in. Oh, yeah. Good, old, good old-fashioned entertainment. They clearly are both passionate about the game as well. So I think it's, again, it's going to be a slow burn. And I, you know, I should, this is hardly going to be a newsflash for your listeners, but they're going to be coming back. Of course, and it yeah. May, it, it, it may take some time before the concussion education message has kind of equal staging to the actual games themselves. You know what I mean? How have you, uh, how have you found the, the higher-level sports in this country in regards to how they communicate with you, I suppose, uh, if they yeah. do at all, and, and how they go about 
um, handling concussion uh, during a during a game, if you know what I mean. Is there anything of it, like which particular sport in this country do you watch the most of out of those three collision sports?
And one thing that fascinates me about concussion in this day and age, if you think, I don't know, again, how old you are, but when I was a kid, the kinds of people who were, who were quote-unquote professional rugby league players were paddle beaters or fitters and turners or plumbers or electricians Monday to Friday, and they would go to the gym and they would train and they would come onto the field on Saturday and do their best. Yeah. And a lot of them were kind of lanky, not necessarily worked out, buffed individuals. But now, if you look at rugby players, the body shapes, the body mass of these players, they're like little tanks. Yeah. And they're going at each other at 100 miles an hour. No wonder the concussion risk exposures, I think, are higher purely by virtue of that. These are now professional athletes who are full-time in the sport and who spend relentless hours in the gym to build up body mass and speed and so on and so forth. The kinds of forces that are involved now in Australia's collision sports, to my mind, are nothing like they would have been, my guess is, 20, 30 years ago. So I suppose the, the big thing in that situation is... Is there anything that the, the, the three sports over here and obviously the collision sports over in the States as well and around the world, is there anything they can do protocol-wise? Because you, you, you're going to get concussions. There's, you can't avoid that in a collision sport, whether it's a direct hit to the head or, or whether it's just the brain rattling against the skull when the player hits, hits the ground. Um, yep. Is there anything protocol-wise post-contact that you'd like to see added into... Uh, any of the sports or any of the processes to try and avoid the repeat concussions, which is what you know, which is what really afflicted Keith Primu with yep. his with, with with his condition that he went through. So, I mean, so how, how the world has changed is in one particular area. So, at least nowadays, particularly at elite level, I should say from the get go, the kind of concussion education that Brain Injury Australia does is really grassroots stuff. Good. So good. My, my attitude is. It, in sort of simple terms, is that I think it's great what the elite levels are doing, professional ranks of league, union AFL, soccer, etc., etc. It's great what they're doing, but it will take time for that positive concussion message to filter down to sort of grassroots, grassroots level. So the kind of stuff that I do is really about the, the local pub competition, the local amateur competition, kids play, awesome. that kind of stuff. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, which I think is really, really important because there is so much, there's a lot of fear out there, particularly on the part of parents. It's really important to say that with 80 or 90% of concussions, people who are concussed make a full, so-called uneventful recovery within 10 to 14 days. So how the world has changed since Keith Primu was playing ice hockey back in, I don't know, the 80s and 90s, was that it, nowadays, I assume it, it applies equally to ice hockey as it would, would to AFL or, or gridiron in the States or rugby union or rugby league, is first of all, they do what's called baseline testing with players at the beginning of the season. So they do a, bu- a bunch of psychometric tests to, chest, to test how fast, how agile their brain is. And they're given a score. And when they get concussed, they've got to return to that score on similar kinds of tests before they can turn, return to even training, let alone competitive play. So that's, that's what happens at kind of the professional elite level, okay? That's the first thing to say. So, and and if, you know, if 
player health and, sa health and safety is at the forefront of the minds of coaches and trainers. When they see a concussed player, they take them out of the field of play and they can't return to play or training until they're back to baseline measures. So what, what would you say if I said to you that that's not what they do in the NHL? They take them off the ice, take them back to a dark room for 15 minutes, don't do a baseline testing in that moment, and then they go back out onto the ice. So, even though I've been, you know, following the ice hockey classic around the country for the last three years, I am by no means. No, it's more so just that that just seems like a massive flaw in their protocol system. Like everything you just explained a second ago. Cam, in answer to your question, Cam, I have no idea what the concussion protocols are in the NHL. If what you're saying is true, then I guarantee you, as surely as night follows day. There is going to be litigation involved in the NHL where they will have to be brought to book and bring their concussion assessment and management policies up to best practice. Because if what you're saying is true, with their you know, players are taken out of play, taken into the locker rooms, told to sort of sit down for 10 minutes and sort of repair and recover and then return to play, that is in manifest breach of the most recent, recent consensus statement of the International Concussion and Sport Group, which is about to meet in Berlin uh, in October of this year. That's so, brilliant to know. That's really good stuff to know. There's a, there's a, there's a bunch of high-level you know, sports scientists, neurologists, neurosurgeons um, who get together every three years in Europe and they put together a consensus statement which is meant to inform best practice concussion assessment and management of the following three years. And it is absolutely clear as day out of the last one was in, I think, in Vienna in 2012, that if you have a concussion or a suspected concussion, you are taken out of play and are definitely, positively, absolutely not meant to return to play on the same day. That's this, this, That was sort of the assumption, but that's just not what happens at the NHL level. And this is why I wanted to have a chat to you, because you're going to have a much better idea than I will in regards to what best practice globally is as opposed to what happens within the confines of that one particular sport that, you know, obviously I follow very closely. Well, I, I, guess, I guess all I can say is that, you know, if just given the following the NHL has in Australia, given the kind of a crowd that it attracts, you know, television sales, it, it must be huge business in North America. I'd be astonished if they were in regular, flagrant violation of these kinds of concussion, concussion assessment and management protocols. What I assume they are doing is doing what sideline tests with the players and deeming them not concussed or somehow, somehow or other, and returning them the same day of play. But I, if what if what you're saying is true, it would be a genuinely, genuinely national scandal. Well, it's one of those things. They're coming up to their own uh, class action against them as well. So that this right. is. That's a big one, isn't it?
so they end up with a lower score so they can return to play sooner after they have been concussed in the duration of the season. So there's a whole bunch yeah. of... In spite of what some people will tell you, with absolute confidence and absolute certainty about concussion, it is still, even though it's the most common and the oldest head injury in the world, there is still an awful lot of both uncertainty and subjectivity around diagnosis. Oh, it's, that's a really good point you made about the, the athletes tanking as well. It's, it's yeah. something that, yeah, how, like if you're a responsible physician, how are you supposed to know if someone's tanking at the start of the year for the baseline testing later on? Like, it's a, it's a really good point. I should, also, yeah, I should also say, in the interest of full disclosure, that I, I, am, I am assured that the newest, you know, battery of tests have different ways of sussing out whether the player is deliberately giving the wrong answers or not. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's good to hear. It's, it's one of those things, the professional athletes, they've been trained their entire life to push the limits they obviously don't want to miss playing. So, yeah, I get why athletes do it, even if it is to yep. their own detriment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, going back to the, the grassroots aspect, what are the things that, that you try to encourage uh, parents to do and, and, and young athletes and, and just the general beer league sort of a guy to do in regards to concussions? So, I mean, what, what, I, what I've done is I've, I've, after doing some research in the area, I've trademarked what I call the five R's of concussion, which is recognise the injury, removal from play, referral to a doctor, rest, and then return to play. So really basic stuff around knowing what, uh, and the reason why it's, it's removal rather than remove is because, you know, there, I'm sure maybe this has happened to you as well, there are plenty of circumstances in concussion where the concussed player themselves does not realise that they are concussed yeah. and simply keep on playing. It's happened to so me before, yeah. The reason, why, the reason why it's removal rather than remove is because it's really important to tell, to educate the entire team about what concussion looks like from a bystander perspective. So I've been told countless stories about, you know, a retired, you know, rugby union player who played many, many, you know, minutes, halves, hours of play concussed, was clearly completely unaware of what the stock plays were, who couldn't remember the plays, couldn't remember field position, etc., etc. And no one really tweaked to this, so he kept on playing, which is incredibly dangerous for the brain, for obvious reasons. Oh, yeah, of course. So, and it, it is part of... So the, the kind of bedrock of the five R's is the referral part, so going off to see a doctor. And I'm, I'm under no misapprehension here that doctors themselves also need to have a lot more continuing medical education about what concussion is or means. That's part of the work that I do as well. There is a huge controversy around rest because some people think that when I talk about rest, I mean like you know, sensory deprivation, lying in bed, not moving in a darkened room, etc., etc. What rest means is rest from the exact same activity that puts you at risk of concussion in the first place. So what that means is rest from the play, competitive play, the contact sport, the collision sport that gave you the concussion in the first place. Return to physical activity at the right time is certainly important. It also means a rest from cognitive activity as well. So one of the big issues here with children particularly is that a lot of parents think, well, okay, we've just got to take them out of the field of play and take them away from the sport. But also if you think about what the really obvious thing about the brain is it involves things like concentration, attention and memory. So a lot of kids return to school, return to learning way too early and suffer as a consequence. So 
it means a rest from both the activity, the sporting activity that gave you the concussion in the first place, but particularly with kids and adolescents, it also means taking time off school or tape or whatever else. Oh, that's a tough one to encourage parents to get their kids out of school, isn't it? It's um, really good to know because it's one of those things with uh, the NHL, like the helmet became mandatory um, and there hasn't really been, I would say, uh, massive advancement on the helmet. But in the end, I think the helmet's there to save the skull from fractures from um, the puck, more so than, like you were saying, the concussive side of things because, as, as, as we both know... the, the yeah, that's exactly some of them don't wear them, but you know that's their personal personal choice on the mouth guard. So when someone does have the concussion and their life's uh, degenerating from uh, the brain injury, whether it's you know concussion related or, or others like you mentioned earlier uh, from the discussion, what what do you do in regards to trying to assist their, their life from that point on? Is there anything that you guys can do as an organisation? Some, some two or three years ago. 
And because it was a motor vehicle accident, not a stroke or encephalitis or some kind of degenerative neurological disease. And this is one of the, it's a side issue to our conversation, but one of the, the gross inequities in brain injury in this country is if you have your brain injury by dint of a motor vehicle accident, there is compensation available to you by virtue of green slip payments around the country. Yeah. So this girl, this girl, 19 years of age, had a whole life ahead of her, was hoping to do a psychology degree at university, motor vehicle accident, severe traumatic brain injury, qualified for one of the compulsory third-party schemes here in New South Wales, is now living all paid for in public housing, um, has, even though she's reasonably high-functioning, she certainly has some memory challenges, some organisational planning, concentration and attention planning um, challenges. She basically spends her entire day on the computer, watching TV, not doing a great deal, um, says she's happy, but not really engaged with the wider world at all. And this is something, you know, this is not the life that the mother envisaged for the daughter, and she can't imagine that deep down inside the daughter is happy with the way that she lives. Yeah. And because, because, she's, because her injuries are compensable, there's no real incentive for her to get out there and try and earn a living, return to even volunteer activities. She's being paid, she's got carers that are paid for coming to tend to her in her home, and she really spends 24-7 not doing an awful lot. And there are a lot of my constituents, the 700,000 Australian, Australians who've got a brain injury, who live pretty much like that, with not a great deal to do and not a great place to live, um, who are really disengaged from the wider world. And what really gets me out of bed in the morning are the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of individuals, 30, 40, 50 years of age, living at home in their pyjamas being cared for by mum. Well, that's not great for either person, really, when you think about it, is it? No, and the mother, the mother, the mother that I referred to earlier is just devastated, was in tears, again on the phone with me, because, because there's been such collateral damage. So um, because the daughter's relationship with the mother is now damaged in some ways, the son, who was incredibly close to both his sister and his mother, have had, the, the son has now followed a, a similar kind of you know, working demise where he's not particularly interested in doing any kind of work. He's got no relationship with his sister. So the, the mother who did her level best as a single mother to raise both these children is looking at her family structure, looking at, the, at, looking at her offspring and wondering what's, what, what the hell is in it for her anymore. Yeah, no, I, I could, I can, the, the picture you're painting, it's very easy to see why a parent would feel that way.
It's good to see that somebody's out there trying to look after these people that have got something wrong with them that they really can't do anything about. It's funny, hearing you say all of these things, it's one of those things that I don't know if this is pushed upon enough for young adults looking to get into a professional sport. So these risks and dangers of post-career side effects of you know continual concussions, I think if you told an 18-year-old kid at the end of his career when he gets to 50 he's he's not going to be coherent with his family or his kids and all that hard work he put into <clears throat> excuse me to, to make sure he's comfortable for the rest of his life he's not going to get to enjoy I, I think um, an 18 year old kid might actually look a little bit differently at treating the concussion protocols a little bit more seriously yeah absolutely yeah and, and that, I mean it's you know, like you know any testosterone field testosterone field boy or girl in the prime of her teens thinking about the future and thinking about how you know how valuable and fragile your brain is isn't necessarily top of mind no of course not it it, it does so it's about bringing those kinds of messages home by virtue of telling the stories and that's what I often tell the stories of my constituents particularly that again that young 18 through 35 risk taking traumatic brain injury yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a great thing that, that you do, Nick. Um, I don't think I've got uh, any more questions as such. I mean, this is this has been really enlightening because um, you know I know about concussions, but to to get a good idea um, in regards to what you have to try and do to, to try and help people handle it in the community, the fact that you're having a crack at it at grassroots, which is I, I, like you said, it's going to be a couple of generational. Uh, changes before we actually get to see a big change in in, in sports in general. But um, I'd just really like to, to thank you for, for your time and um, also just to let everybody know that um, you can donate to uh, Brain Injury Australia. It's just on their website. If you go to braininjuryaustralia.org.au, um, you'll see the donate link up on the top right. As you heard from the start, Nick is literally a 1.1 man show. So uh, any, any assistance for them would be great. I'll also put uh, a couple of links on the on the website as well um, so you can go and see some of the stuff that, that Nick does. So, Nick, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks a lot, Cam, and uh, all the best to your listeners, mate. Thanks very much, Nick. <laughs>